Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Slowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the co-founder of Head Coach and Director of Players and Coaches Development at FC London, Jonathan O'Neill. Johnny, big warm welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, mate. I'm very grateful to do the hat-trick. Yeah, the hat-trick appearance and I forgot the football. <laughs> I'm having a great start today, but listen, man. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's crazy. Fast forward a year and a half compared to... As opposed to last time we spoke on a podcast, September 2021, which I believe. I mean, there's been a lot of change since both on and off the pitch for yourself. Uh, like I had to invite you on the podcast alone today to just bloody get a chance to speak to you. Change is always good. It means growth. Um, it never happens on the timeline that we want either. Because I know when the last time I was on, we were like, yeah, we'll have this app for you in two weeks. And it's been two weeks for two years. <laughs> so finally, I'm glad to be here and tell you that, yes, um, the Head Coach app should be available and ready to launch on October 17th. Fantastic. And I can't wait to see it out. I've been using it myself, as you know. Uh, my girls for the U17s here at FC London, they've been using it as well. But obviously, there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast too for the first time, Johnny. And you know, they won't have a clue on earth what Head Coach is. So for those people listening, I mean, how could you describe the app and could you bring us up to speed on what actually has happened since September 2021? Yeah, for sure. Um, so what is Head Coach? Head Coach is a mobile app that utilizes the power of emotional intelligence through a digital technology that allows athletes and coaches to build the habit of EQ. Mm. Mm -hmm. So uh, emotional intelligence for me has a has been a big driver in my performance and well-being and development as a coach and as a human being. And having spoke to a lot of coaches and having worked with a lot of players face-to-face, one-to-one with this, scalability is always a difficulty for coaches who are already over overloaded. So for me, it was, it was just a matter of how do we find a scalable solution to coaches and players who need performance psychology within their, within their paradigm, within their framework of how they work. And I mean, it all stems back from your earlier days in college. I believe it was in 2016 you did a research paper on the future development of youth players, you know, and there is an awful lot of what we spoke about before, which suggests that you thought it was overboarded on the physical side of things. It was overboard on the tactical, technical, but no one at that time was perhaps doing the work they're doing now, cognitively speaking with players. So obviously speaking about EQ and football there, why should football coaches be concerned with EQ? Um, well, like you say, I did my postgraduate in coaching in University of Central Lancashire. And at the time, the UK had brought out a new coaching framework with kind of encompassing these other soft skills. Obviously, they're hard skills. We can get to that down the line. But mm. there was a part in our EQ module in a book I was reading. I believe it was called Emotional Intelligence Coaching. And the, there was a nice little equation in it. It was performance is equal to your potential minus interferences. All right. And my head just started going, what is interfering with my potential? Because obviously as a coach, your job is to improve football ability, but your ability won't come out unless we have removed as many interferences as possible. And it just led me to a journey where I was reflecting on my values and what had interfered with me doing my best. Um, and there's probably a lot of coaches out there who are better than me, more tactically adept, um, probably have more knowledge on these things, but I feel like it accelerated my development as a coach and a person, which um, 
I've seen the value with for the past seven years and I don't foresee it changing because it's a it's a tool or a skill that we must constantly develop and manage as it helps us navigate our journey with wherever that leads us. Yeah, you'd be delighted to know. I mean, in preparation for this podcast, I was researching one of your footballing heroes, Arsene Wenger. You know, he might as well be a god to you at this stage. But uh, I mean, he acknowledged the importance of this the other day and that fantastic independent piece he did with Miguel Delaney. He says, I believe football can change the world, not just on the football side, the human side. That's the next step. Mm-hmm. So you think back to your Jim Lohr podcast where he spoke about the game of sport and the mm-hmm. game of life and how they're interconnected. And we always talk about person first, person first. But if you zoom out and see, does that actually happen? It's very easy to forget in performance-driven environments, which I'm part of now. Something that is almost inescapable unless there's a conscious attempt to change that. And even if there's a conscious attempt, it's very difficult because everybody wants to win. So it's very, very easy to forget. But what my hope is, is if you have a notification in your pocket and you have a message being constantly delivered through coaches and through players, um, we can help in some way to alleviate that and to change the paradigm. What's interesting for me is where your work cross-pollinates and coincides with Jim Loris, and it's not for the obvious reasons. At the start of the podcast, I don't know if you remember with Jim, he spoke about how he's fascinated in his previous profession as just psychologist, clinical psychologist, taking people from the depths of despair and improving upon them. Whereas, why not go into sports where you can make a profound impact on people that are already, they have a lot of safety needs met. So, for you, is it a case of there's a framing problem when it comes to performance sports? Is it a case of we are expecting too much too soon from these kids? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the objective of the game is to win. Hmm. But it's always about at which cost and what am I prepared to sacrifice for that? And I can't speak to other coaches. I can only speak through my experience, the pressure that I've felt as a coach. Um, Because even at the end of the day, the amount of workshops and presentations I deliver to players about focusing on processes and forgetting outcomes, they still always tell me that they want to win. And they always tell me that this is their ambition. And when I was their age, I was probably the same. Um, So yeah, there's certainly a framing problem, but you can't get away from the competition aspect of sport and life in general, because at the end of the day, we're here to cooperate and we're here to compete. And that is the game of life and the game of sport. So it's about how do we manage the competition at a healthy level, whereby we're also thinking about cooperation and teaching cooperation as an equal or higher order than the competition itself. It's interesting you bring up cooperation because you know what I was reading in preparation for this too. For those that don't know um, already, Johnny has a fantastic blog on a head coaching app. One of the very first articles you penned was your study of Chimp Empire, that Netflix show, and the power of cooperation. So for those that don't already know, could you take us through, I mean, some of the key findings that you unpicked in that? Yeah. um, So basically, Chimp Empire has been a 30-year study. Um, I can't remember the name of the director or the producer, but they were able to capture the behaviors and the dynamics within social groups of chimps over a 30-year period, and eventually the observer effect. And what that means is when you look at something, it changes its natural state. So eventually they forgot about the cameras and people started to see how they behave and how they interact with each other. And 
the most successful group within that forest was the group who had the ability to cooperate on a larger scale. So I believe it was the central group that is an average size of a chimp group, which is about 60. However, the Western could be could have had those two mixed up, but the Western had, I think, 100 chimps cooperating, which was, I guess, almost like an evolution, um, evolutionary step for chimps, whereby they're now cooperating in a larger group. And if you think about what Yuval Noah Harari said, that's how we became the apex predator. It's not because we're the fastest, the strongest. We can just cooperate in larger groups. And if football is even to win, the team who cooperates the most and achieves their intention together with aligned actions is the successful team. So in the same way, cooperation is a good thing that we can teach these kids or the players in general that we work with, whether it's adults or or youth and cooperation and communication is probably of the highest order, even if they do want to win. Mm. And how soon ought that to be teached or coached? I, I think I think it's taught implicitly yeah. in in how we interact and how we behave with each other. Um, I've been very very conscious of watching other people's interactions since I watched this, and I notice a lot of things how people express status or cooperation or how they express their interactions with another person, how they show they're part of this tribe. So it's it's been very, very interesting. But I think one of the most important parts is that everyone needs to have a function and a value within it. Otherwise, they can feel ostracized. And you probably see that in youth sport a lot when there's young boys, for example, young girls growing up and finding their way. Yeah, to pick up from Yanni's conversation earlier on, I had with him on this podcast, he spoke about function over form. Mm-hmm. So it really echoes into that too. But I mean, obviously I haven't had the privilege to get to know you a lot more over these past two years. I know to borrow one of your own phrases, you've been deep in the trenches, you know, in a pursuit of knowledge, you know, and it's been nearly unquenchable at times seeing you devour book after book. And I mean, not only studying chimp empire, could you please take us through what you've been through the past 18 months in terms of some of the other resources, books, podcasts that you've been listening to that have... I suppose, enhanced what was already kind of a holistic view of EQ. Yeah, so, so look, just to be clear, emotional intelligence probably has multiple different definitions, mm. but I think all of them would agree that it's about regulating your own emotions, about managing yourself and your relationships internally and with the outside world. Um, so cooperation and social skills are a big part of that too. I feel like no matter what I read in any domain, whether it's neuroscience, whether it's psychology, um, there's always overlap or something where the language isn't necessarily a catalyst for progression, but it can be an inhibitor. One of the things that's helped me align a lot of the language that I hear from all these different domains is Raymond Verheyen's football coach evolution yeah, model. Fantastic. His football theory model, where he speaks about an overarching intention, um, functions and tasks, and then actions aligned with that in, in an integrated model. So th- that's been something that has been a big value and it's it's essentially helped me put a spine through all of the knowledge that I have kind of tried to acquire within different domains. Mm. And I mean, you constantly say to me, you know, the app is turning into what is really an extension of yourself and the other co-founders. I mean, for you, how much over the past 18 months has there been 
moments of experiential learning that have gone back into this app. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, the app is something that I have used for myself and for others in analog ways. So I have always reflected on my why, what I do, why I do what I do, what I do, and am I doing it congruently with other aspects of my life? Habits, habits is always something I've been conscious of because at times I've had I've had a why, I've had an idea, I've had a vision, but my right my actions haven't been aligned with that. Mm-hmm. Not for no other reason than I didn't know the right actions at the time. It's a lot of trial and error. So habit tracking, habit development has been something that has been crucial at that time. And then when you're trying to forego on any journey or develop any level of mastery, you're probably going to need to regulate yourself a lot because you're going to find yourself in times where you're incompetent or you don't know what you need to know next. So it's very easy in theory to say these things and to say we're starting an app, but the amount of granularity with regards to the functionality comes comes into question then and there's a lot of things you'll not realize you have to do to to bring something from an analog form to digital um, and to make sure that people want to actually engage with it so yeah that that's been where i've been kind of at now thinking about i know the value of it i know the function of it however other people might need it to look better or to make them feel a certain way when they use it so that's something that that i have been tangled with recently and the the trial, for example, that we did with your girls, they loved it. They seen the value. They just needed notifications because they have constantly notifications from Snapchat and Instagram and all these other things that are quick hits. However, even if you see the value of something and you're fighting against all these other frictions, it's difficult. So to give them a cue, which is the start of any habit, a notification is is something that, that we didn't know we would have needed. I wouldn't have needed it, but other people will need it. So... Yeah, there's been many things like that that have been interesting parts of developing the app. Absolutely fascinating. And yeah, for those that don't know, probably don't. Obviously, coaching you 17 girls here at the club, I mean, it's been fascinating to see you work closely in tandem with them over the past 10 to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. I suppose you couldn't take people through it. Um, so, so basically, we did a case study with a 2007 group of girls. They are, they are a group of high-performance girls, and what that means is they're training five days a week and they have a game. They're also in school. They're also dealing with coming out of COVID. They're also dealing with university. So they have a lot of pressure on them. One thing that they told me, they have they have a lot of external pressure. And one thing I've noticed is when someone is a high achiever, no matter how well they're doing, they tend to be very hard on themselves. And if you're always hard on yourself and you don't give yourself credit, you're probably at risk of losing confidence. So one of the things we had identified with the girls was a skill we could work on was confidence. So the, f- the first thing we spoke to was what does confidence look and feel like? Um, what what is it? What is it to you? What is it to us as a group? And we embarked on a journey to use the app to deliver confidence strategies to them. And there were strategies involving self-talk, involving breathing, involving body language. And yeah, basically that was it. We constantly reflected on it. We went over their performances. We tried to remove the focus on the outcome and go back to what we can do within the moment. And we have just finished the case study and there was some positive results in relation to how the strategies helped them on and off the field. Yes, I had a coach again. I have to thank you once more because I can see very noticeably the profound impact that those strategies had on the girls from 
conceding goals to moments where momentum and the shit and the tides were turning in games. And it was just fascinating to see you kind of explore it and unpick that with them each week. It was fascinating for me too, is that obviously it's what you'd expect with every group, Johnny, like some lived and died and breathed by the app. Others used it intermittently, others didn't use it at all. But what was really, really fascinating when you were unpicking those key insights with me earlier on this week and prep for this podcast was that how they all came together. That was very unexpected for yourself. How they all came together in these moments of strife and how they're nearly like in terms of putting on the life jacket themselves first, then looking to regulate each other, I thought was pretty cool and fascinating. Yeah. And look, that's the that's the power of cooperation. Mm. It's something because at the end of the day, you can either deliver these strategies to individuals or you can do it as a team. Obviously, when you're doing it as a team, the coach has to embody it. Um, and obviously, you had the app, the, the beta version of the app, but it was nice to see the girls take their own initiative and, and get together at, at those times and use the strategies as a group. And that was a, an unexpected positive consequence we've seen that hopefully that makes it stick more in the future. Yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, zooming back out again, two, three questions, you speak about identity. Identity being a huge thing, you know, the big question to ask yourself constantly, you know, am I living congruently with that ideal version of self? But then there's that self-identity and group identity. So it's interesting how, like, am I living congruently? That's a very good indicator of kind of the groups and the herds of people which you're surrounded with. So for me, it's been fascinating to kind of seeing what was at times, I would say, being uber harsh, certain clicks evolve into kind of actually, you know what, this is good for the whole team. This isn't good for the whole team. This is good for the whole squad. I'm going to act congruently with this because it's for the betterment of each and every one of us. Yeah. So we did workshops with the girls together. We spoke about the strategies. We spoke about the skills. We delivered them to individuals. So what was interesting that was certain individuals stepped up and started to utilize them within a group, mm. which was very, very interesting and something we did not expect. But if you go back to the chimp empire thing or even human behavior, social pressure, or social cohesion is always a motivator for people to behave a certain way. So there was something around that. And at the end of the day, you think O-ring theory, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So even if someone's not within your immediate clique, maybe you know that if you want to have success here, you have to cooperate. And if you want that, you should bring them in along for this. And I think as a result of that, the values were embedded in the team because, you know, that identity piece, you know, are you living in accordance with your total congruent self? It's a pretty good value metric for understanding. If you get back to the cooperation piece with social herds and what herds of people and dyna group dynamic of people you want to embed yourself into because the easiest thing to kind of change the behavior is really to change the environment is it not for me in the past it's been very very easy to change my habits if i change my environment because mm -hmm. almost you're a slave to the environment a lot of the time right yeah so yeah i i feel like that's that's something to consider but knowing the girls that, that you coached they, there was a big emotional drive for something for them. I think that the most powerful thing that we have to change our behavior is emotion. Like a feeling, like I, I want this or this is what's going to drive me. So yeah, I think that was something that that really galvanized them. Like they care, they want to play better, they want to win, they do want to perform. 
they don't want to walk away from the pitch not thinking that they had given everything. So I think there's something to be said about, look, no matter what, if uh, let's say we go out on our sword and we lose, but did we give everything? Did we let things creep in that once we go one then no once we go one they'll down or someone gets sent off or the referee makes a terrible mistake something that I have trouble with constantly um, can we continue to go in spite of that it's interesting because for me it kind of goes back into one's own potential and you know studying the self-actualization piece as profoundly as you have the transcendence piece you know you have your own performance equation there but Abraham Maslow one of the most famous humanistic psychologists of all time, if not the number one. You know, he has a great quote being, you know, one's own arrival is his potentialities. So it's fascinating when we speak about there's all these different things you could be doing, especially nowadays if you look at the ecosystem over here in terms of optionality. So that decision to buy in, it could come from many different ways. But if it's, you don't have that key emotion, I suppose... Is that interrelated in any way to the interference that you spoke about at the start? I mean, every country is probably different. Every ecosystem within a country is probably different as well. Like you touched on, the the girls that we're coaching, I don't know the financials of most people in general, but in particular, our club is not cheap. The OPDL is not cheap to be part of, so they're investing a certain amount of capital in it. So what you're assuming for most of them is that their basic needs are met basic material needs. That doesn't necessarily mean that their basic needs of safety are there, that their basic needs of esteem. So it, it's it's not quite like, oh, I have food and shelter and stuff, so everything's fine. Some people can have all those things and they're still not fulfilled or they still don't feel safe. So there's something around that that um, is a challenge here. The, the other side of that challenge is with, when they have all these things, it's actually a benefit. So there, there's no rocky story here. There's no poverty story with our players. They have all of their basic needs met in those ways where they have actually a platform for potentiality. Hmm. However, do they have that setback that they get that makes them go so low that they have to come back up? Maybe not. And yeah, that, that's something as coaches and within our app, the resilience strategies that we try to use that it's something we're trying to not artificially implement, but but periodize and plan as part of their training structure. So, for example, when we finished our training last year, October 1st, I think we had won like 14 games in a row. The boys had had a great season in, in all, all aspects, depending on what way you want to look at it. But we decided to go even harder and to raise the tempo and raise the standards of everything the next month. And the strategies that we gave the players were work harder than everyone else here. That was everybody's strategy, like outwork everybody, be prepared to suffer in training. And they they ate it up. So there's something about giving people the platform to do that. And were the results from that validated to you on a day-to-day -day basis? Was it more of a slow burn in terms of seeing the guys' reactions? Oh, they ate it up. They ate it up. The momentum they had was was high because we had started to implement different mental skills or EQ strategies and skills monthly. Mm. So the first one was focus. And we tied that to football actions, which were scanning and planning. I think the the next one was confidence and optimism. 
and we spoke about making forward passes and forward runs and moving the ball forward if we can. I think the last one we had was was competitiveness and resilience, and we tied that to running and suffering. Like you just have to run. So they they had a framework to stand on and hold those kind of concepts within what they were doing within their actions and behavior and and they tended to eat it up it's actually funny because doing the beta this year with two different groups i have not implemented that this year and i've seen a little bit of a dip this is only anecdotal mm. without using those apps and without using the app and without using eq strategies we could have potentially seen a dip in performance for the group and that may be one of the contributors to it yeah because it's always interesting when you're a coach on the outside like myself you can see you can visibly see the improvement in the guys for the use of these strategies and you can visibly tell that the training is paying off but what i'm most concerned to i suppose explore is fundamentally when the kids are you know grinder to the stone mentality and they're knee deep in it you know what sustains them and keep going because it is the value of the shared collective for the team really and truly that's it so for me is it a case of exploring the identity piece again you know do you see the group identity shifting is it something that's ever flowing or is it probably an end target that you look to hit i'm not too sure all i can say is like the last two years the the dynamic constantly changes because when Mm -hmm. people go through performance dips or peaks or someone goes through a growth spurt or somebody leaves it by definition changes the the interactions. If somebody comes in and let's say there's the head of the chimp empire and another guy comes in who's a, a bigger, stronger chimp, there's an, a fascinating dynamic to watch there in terms of how this all rolls out. And I've had experience and challenges as a coach this year, how to manage and navigate these situations because you can just see it. So... Yeah, the the identity of a team, I guess, can always change, but the essence will probably remain the same. So, for example, our 2009 team, the the thing that will never change is their competitiveness and their will to win. Mm. They have that within them. I'm pretty sure that if five players were to leave, five were to come in, I think the other nine would maintain that. It's almost like the ship of Theseus. I'm pretty sure it's the same. It's not quite the same ship, but the essence would still be there. It's interesting. Yeah, because for me, like seeing firsthand how that team has grown, like, yeah, I don't want to play that horror picture in my head in terms of anyone leaving, but it's going to be fascinating to see how they grow how they grow and develop in tandem over time. But I suppose, like, I know harping on now about identity probably a bit too much, but, like, does it take these landmark events, a milestone, like a grand defeat, a player leaving for the group harmony to be tested? Or is that something that you take validation in from seeing the work ethic of the group, the values that they subscribe to on a daily basis? If we're really kind of exploring the depths now of growth. I think it's constantly tested. Mm. And the reason it's constantly tested is because it's very, very hard to align everybody when resources are, are short. So we can deliver all the messages in the workshops about our team and about how we want to play. But if parents aren't aligned and these people pay here, it's very, very difficult to, it's an interference. Yeah, It's an interference to team's potential unless they're congruent messages. So there's a constant tension there. 
the the biggest the biggest contributor to alleviating that is clarity and communication with parents, which is very, very difficult. If you coach 20 kids and you have 40 parents and you don't know what's happening before they come or when they leave or the messages that are being delivered, sometimes you can kind of predict it when you see the actions. You can reverse engineer the actions and say, okay, this dad's probably told them to do X, Y, or Z. So yeah, for, for, for me, the identity is constantly changing. It, it just depends on how strong the roots are from the club. It's probably much different in a North American club than it is in a club back in the UK or Europe, whereby there are less constraints or affordances for behaviours beyond what you would like to have. Hmm. I suppose football emanates from the ground up. You know, it's a first order consequence of the land in which it's played. And, you know, we've spoken about so many times now the Jim Moore podcast, you know, the game of football being embedded within the game of life. There's probably no better teacher than football. Like the lessons you could learn in the league campaign playing as a 12, 13 year old is like bloody worth five, six years of school. Yeah, well, I go back to Raymond's references here, mm. whereby there is an objective to the game. And it's obviously to score one more goal than the other team. In life, it's slightly different. It's just about you doing your best, right? But there's an intention. And behind that intention, there are certain actions that you must take in relation to that intention. And then you must cooperate and navigate the water or the pitch in relation to managing that journey. So like you said before, there are a lot of lessons that people can learn for life through sport. But in the same way, you can develop skills off the pitch that might be effective preconditions for the pitch. So, for example, if you think about what Raymond would say, Raymond would say that that confidence is a non-contextual word for something that within a football action he would call think action. But off the pitch, confidence is a, is a skill that, that is useful and we can probably bring it as a precondition to performance on the field. Mm. And that too has been equally fascinating recently to see how you've unpacked confidence and competence. No less than doubt in front of myself and you 17 girls yesterday. And I know there's a piece you have in the books at the moment that you're working on, but I mean, there's been a trend recently online in relation to tying confidence into competence. And what I have here now is a quote from Alex Hormozzi that you've been looking at and researching and investigating these past two, three weeks. And it's, you don't become confident by shouting affirmations in a mirror, but by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. I mean, on one side to play devil's advocate, he's pretty right there in saying, I mean, action is a prerequisite to attaining any skill really or accomplishing any goal. So where do you begin to differentiate between confidence and competence? Well, the first thing I would say is if they're the same thing, why would we have two different words? And this is where language can get tricky, right? And you can get lost in a semantic battle. But I look at competence being an integral part of confidence. And the reverse is also true. So what I mean by that is if you just take action, and don't change your story or tie a narrative that fulfills you with assurance and, and self-regard. It doesn't matter how competent 
you become you, you can still be lacking confidence and high performers high achievers can get caught in this a lot I remember Arsene Wenger speaking about Oxford Chamberlain and saying that because he was such a high achiever and because he had so many high expectations of himself I mean this is a guy playing in the Champions League he's playing in the Premier League for one of the best managers of all time but he's not confident but he's very competent highly competent so there's something around looking at confidence as an integrated skill with different pillars. The, the one I like is the is the Roche Martin definition of confidence that integrates self-competence, self-assurance. And I think it's self-liking too, which is similar to self-esteem, mm. which would tie back to unconditional positive self-regard. And what that means is like in spite of my achievements and my competence or where I want to go, I'm I'm okay right now. I think it's very important too, once you're working with young athletes, right, to leave some fat on the table too. And with respect to that, Duncan Simpson of IMG, Director of Personal Development down there, he speaks about goal shifting in this context. He says, and you don't know where the future is going to lead with these young athletes in terms of goals are shifting due to a variety of factors, selection, competition, performance. So having your confidence or having your degree of self-worth just tied to one of those pillars for me is very much like we're leaving so much growth behind on the table. So, you know, any performance program worth its weight in salt. I mean, how soon do you begin working on this with kids that are identified for these high performance programs? As soon as possible, as late as necessary. Mm, as, soon, th- as soon as possible, though. Yeah. So, right. for, for example, one of the things, one of the one of the responses I had to delivering emotional intelligence strategies to players who are 9 to 12 is like, well, they don't have a prefrontal cortex yet. Um, they're not self-aware. And I'm like, well, it, it can still be a habit that you can implement with these people. And young people identify very much with that one thing. Like, I am a footballer. I want to be a footballer. The first question I always ask my players is, are you training five days a week? Are you going to bed at this time? Are you playing... Well, then you're already a footballer. So what else are you away from football? So this is where I feel like it's important to speak to the person and not just the player. And a lot of the time what that means is speaking to them, not like a unit of labor for a coach to achieve their intention of winning, which is very, very difficult when you're a coach and you want to win and the player wants to win. Mm. And zooming out and looking at what is there beyond football and finding out about them and getting to know their interests and if they have any. A lot of them actually don't because they haven't actualized that yet or maybe no one has asked them the question. And maybe some of the kids right now, if I ask them it, it'll go over their head, but maybe in seven years when they're a bit older, they'll be like, okay, I see what I see what he was getting at there. And do you think it's like an unwritten rule of responsibility for the coach to kind of delve and explore deeper what self-worth means to these kids because for me undoubtedly there's some great work being done in youth development circles all over but there is that few that kind of from past experience and from anecdotal evidence you know the bear is so low you know for me this sort of stuff is low hanging fruit before you begin to explore anything regarding team intentions or anything regarding footballing tactics or anything of the sorts Mm-hmm. I think when you're a little bit older, um, these things present themselves to you 
because you'll come across frictions in other parts of your life, right? Mm. So for me, like I focused on football only for a long time to the detriment of other things. But the football was enough to get me by to a certain point. But but then after a while, it doesn't help you with your relationship. It doesn't help you when you're prioritizing things beyond making sure you're reducing as many interferences as possible. So it's, it's about growing yourself and then removing as many interferences to your current ability. And of course, there is the Nietzsche quote where he speaks about just because I don't have the the key to my lock, because I have problems doesn't mean I don't have the key to yours. Mm. However, there's also something about I can't improve other people unless I'm living it and improving myself. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating because that was going to tie into the next piece. Like, are we expecting too much of coaches too? Because, you know, you speak about the, the player being seen as a unit of labour for you know, for what it's worth these days, often too, I see coaches treating, there's this, well, huge anti-trend, I would say, against it recently, which kind of you've been a part of highlighting and suggesting too, of, you know, coaches being seen nothing more as a unit of labour. The coach's entire self-worth being caught in amongst this job where it's like the expectations sometimes are set so high, the bar is set so high, it's like nearly demotivating and crippling in terms of never reaching. So it's just like, where do we begin to address the problem? Because for me, Johnny, I said this to you as a friend and colleague, I don't think it's even good enough nowadays for the coach to be self-regulated. If you don't have that support network, if you don't have the resources, if you don't have the infrastructure and the people higher up, it's very, very tough to kind of maintain a level playing ground where you can, as we begin to speak about self-actualize and do your best work. Yeah. and. Like we said before, you're you're a slave to your environment a lot of the time and the actions that come out of you are aligned with the culture of a place, what's acceptable, what's not. So the intention has to be aligned from the top down. Otherwise, no matter how good you are regulating yourself, there will be so many interferences that if you're not congruent and if you don't have agency and you don't feel like things are aligned, for sure you're going to struggle with it. But that's also a message you would get only if you were reflecting and zooming out and tracking maybe and monitoring how you're feeling and why you're feeling it. Mm. And for you and your own experience, I mean, you know, what's the healthy dose in terms of tracking? Because I know it's obviously something you still do to this very day, but it's like, for what it's worth, you want to get that micro dose of self-awareness to kind of delve into the acceptance piece and begin to look at the reflections before you even begin to instigate change. I just think that's like part of the art of living. Mm. Like there's the what and then there's the how you do it. So at the end of the day, the coach is responsible for how the team wins, but the what of the game is still to win. So for me, recently, I have not tracked a lot of things because I've been in a stage of just, I have these things to do that are necessary. I need to execute. I'm not in a current stage. I'm not a young player who needs to grow and needs to develop a certain skill. So there are times when... I'll track a lot more and usually that's when I either want to refocus and recenter or when I do want to develop a new skill or there's a new area where I want to go to. So tracking habits is a good way of looking back and seeing what you've accomplished or the work that you've done. Mm. So like the analogy I'd like to give is if I was swimming, I swam in a lake a couple of months back, well, 
couple of days back. It shows you how much time has passed. And the current was going against me and it was just swimming for the love of swimming. I just loved to do it. And I didn't feel like I had went very far. But when I look back, I was like, wow, you've, you've went quite some distance here. So there's also the trap of being too lost in a process where you forget to give yourself credit for things and by definition might not gain the confidence or the self-assurance that you would had you looked back and seen how far you had came. Yeah, it's fascinating for me because you speak <laughs> you speak about swimming in the lake. It takes me back to the tale of two swimmers. And I think before I speak about it, I'll have to introduce kind of the the backstory to it. Like too, I mean, as you say in the article, I mean, yet to be released, may I say, all human behavior's real motive was to self-actualize. That is to expand and realize our unique potential. All human needs could be categorized into two main classes, deficiency needs, D needs, and growth needs, B needs. And I mean, you go on to break this down so eloquently, may I add, into D confidence and B confidence. You know, and it's with that being said, there's probably no better tale to tell than that of the two swimmers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And look, I can only speak about it from my own experiences and how I have perceived myself and others. You think about as a coach, you can be either a D coach or a B coach. So you can always look at your players' deficiencies and you can chip. This was wrong. We got to fix this. We got to fix this. And it's very common in a high performance environment because everybody wants to get better. But how often do we stop then and just enjoy the players playing? Something that used to be very important to me as an Arsenal fan and an Arsene Wenger um, fan. Just watching. But I'm pretty sure you can look at the best Arsenal goal they've ever scored and pick it apart. This player should have been here. He should have ran earlier. The defence wasn't as tight as it could be. But that is a frame of perception that you're starting to look at the world through. And it's very, very easy to get caught in there. So when it comes to the confidence piece, if you're being a D coach and having D coach actions more than you're having B coach actions, it's probably a recipe for the kind of environment we are not looking to create and we say we're not, but it's hard. It's interesting. I mean... And I suppose upon reflection just there now, you're saying like, you know, it wasn't too long ago you could just sit back, enjoy watching those Arsene Wenger teams play. I mean, does it hurt you nowadays when you reflect in action about it that you're not able to do as such or those moments are all too fleeting? I think that you have to consciously work on it like any other skill to reframe these things. So I have been very conscious recently of trying to let them play and observe and catch them doing well and interfere as little as possible, but as much as necessary. The art is what is necessary. It depends on what you value. If you value winning, then you're going to interfere a lot more. You're going to interfere a lot more. And the, the analogy or the concept that I like to speak to you about that is if you think about a sculptor mm. and you're on a journey of self-actualization um, or you're on a journey of mastery, you have a goal, you're a piece of marble 
and you're going to have to cut some of the fat. You're going to have to chip some away. So you can look at it two different ways. You can look at it and you can think, I got to lose this. I got to lose this. I got to lose this. I got to chip this part off. I got to chip this part off. That's almost like your deficiency or your areas for improvement or your weaknesses. But if we don't stop to acknowledge the good parts or we can't see those parts, you end up chipping everything away and there's nothing left. And I have done the exercise with players when I have asked them to write down five things that they have accomplished. And some of them come to me and say, I can't write anything down. I have accomplished nothing. And that is a big indicator that they're either living in deconfidence or they're being very, very hard on themselves. And this is where habit tracking come in very, very well. Or this is where habit tracking can come in very, very useful because little things do all add up over time. Watching a game for 20 minutes as a coach, doing yoga as a player for recovery, like over time, these things add up. So it's important to have that maybe three to one or five to one from catch them well, catch them doing well to correct something because then they get into the the habit of every time an action is made, you can see they know they've messed it up and they're waiting for you to say something. But if you think about the Gottman Institute research about couples divorced, where there was one criticism, sorry, one compliment or positive interaction to as many negative, I think it was five to one ratio. And anything less than that was an indicator of a divorce coming. So that analogy can still be used with your relationship with yourself and being too hard on yourself constantly, constantly critiquing yourself and others is definitely a recipe for a divorce with yourself. Absolutely fascinating there. And one thing you speak about is what Peterson speaks of too. You have to be able to credit yourself for doing the small things really well because that's an iterative long-term game. And it never stops and you never have to stop doing it because mm. sometimes if you don't look and zoom out a little bit and give yourself credit for those things, you actually forget. So you're actually doing yourself a disservice by not giving yourself credit because you're probably leaving something on the table. And it, it goes back to the, the Adam Grant think again, imposter syndrome, Dunning-Kruger spectrum, whereby Dunning-Kruger, meaning your perceived competence is much higher than it is where the imposter syndrome is your competence is much higher than either you perceive or give yourself credit for. And it's very, very easy to get there. And if ever there was a performance inhibitor for me, that that would probably be one. Yeah. Could you elaborate upon that? If there is ever a performance inhibitor, that'd be it. So let's say there's a job that you want to go for mm. and You've been working in the trenches, you've been working in the dark, and it's just what you do. Maybe no one has, maybe you haven't differentiated and seen a reference other places to be thinking, I'm doing really, really good work. But because you only see your deficiencies and you only see what you could do, bear in mind that you only know the difference between what you can produce and what you produce. That's always that torment for the artist or for the coach or for the person in their development. Maybe you don't go for that job that you're more than competent for and someone less competent gets it. Um, it goes back to the hero's journey. It's not necessarily always the most competent person. It's the bravest, the 
person who's assured that they may get there and they have the confidence to get there even if they don't have that competence right now, the faith that they can arrive there. I think if you weigh it up, it's, you know, you balance two sides of the spectrum, right? You have the performance side on one hand, the well-being side on another. And most often about, you see like these high achievers, these high performers, they reach a certain scale or they reach a certain peak in the mountain where it comes a stage of actually we've bypassed this first peak of performance. We're world-class at what we do. I am world-class at what I do. Let's speak for example. And then it's a case of, right, to negotiate that terrain to the second peak, it's a case of how do I rectify what I have here performance-wise or what I have going on outside. And that's what is within me. So for me, it's going to be fascinating to unpick that picture in terms of how you can begin to even integrate both. Mm -hmm. And I just think about the analogy of a boxer, like a boxer, let's say Rocky Marciano, he trained in an insane way all day, every day for X number of years. And his thought was that once this is all done, when this is all completed and I have achieved my ambitions as being the, the best fighter in the world or whatever it may be, then I'll enjoy my life and then I'll relax and then I'll look after myself. But how, how many times do these people miss that? Because they either die or something else happens. It's like a lot of these people tell you that they miss something in life, like they sacrifice something for performance over their well-being. But what I would say is the well-being should be an integral part of your performance. And there's no way you do your absolute best with the performance. I'm pretty sure B performance, that is performance integrating, making sure we're looking after ourselves, making sure other parts of our life are, are fulfilled. And it, it's never going to be perfect. Each piece of the pie isn't always going to be tuned up to 10. Some might have to be tuned down to seven other times at four. But even even being conscious of that gives you that aim and that energy to to know when to dial it up or dial it down. I think it's interesting because I think it's very selfless work what you're actually doing at the moment with Head Coach. I really love the app. I'm really inspired by the journey that you're on. But undoubtedly, and I say for what it's worth, is I think everybody sacrifices something to attain something else. So I would say for the trajectory you're on at the moment, for all the work you're doing at this stage with head coach, are you content with the sacrifices that you've had to make? Are you content with the experiences you've had to had in order to get to this point? In terms of have I chosen my regrets? Well, probably because they have led me to where I am. I would not say it has been a selfless endeavor. I would say that it's been very selfish, healthy selfishness, mind you because I have built head coach so that I can manage myself, so that I can regulate myself, so that I can track my well-being, so that I can reflect, so that I'm reminded to do it. And I don't forget when I have all these other tasks that must be executed linked to whatever else I'm doing. I think it was Irvin Yellum in Existential Psychotherapy who said that one of the four existential givens is freedom, like your freedom to choose. But by definition, when you choose one thing, you you turn you turn away all other potentialities in that moment. So I love to coach. I need this app. I need it for my players and for me so that I can help them make sure I'm at my best. 
and we're giving them the tools necessary to perform at their best on and off the pitch. It's interesting. I think of the probably most pertinent and fantastic case study for you. Uh, yesterday, I told you, I interviewed Pat Nevin. Pat, former Scotland international, Chelsea and Everton, now working for the BBC. Over 820 first team appearances and was released from Celtic when he was 15-16. Played at Clyde in the second division in Scotland. Was a college student at the time. They had agreed a fee to sell him to Chelsea. And he wanted to turn it down because he wanted to keep playing football for the sake of playing football. And I spoke to me yesterday about this and he was saying, you know what, Connor, I never lost that essence. I just love playing football because it was football. He loves the broadcast, but it does not nowhere near replicate what he got from the field. He went into executive positions and chairman positions outside of his footballing career to try and replicate that feel and its essence and didn't get it. But he struck me as, I would say, probably one of the number one, one of the best, if not number one case study in the podcast in terms of someone that had those two sides married up really, really well in terms of performance and well-being. It's funny because I never wanted to be a footballer. It was never my intention. I love mm. to play football. I love it. But I always wanted to coach and I don't even know why. I just think maybe it was because I, I grew up watching Arsenal. I grew up admiring Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson. There's probably a mimetic desire within it. But my curiosities and my passions have led me to do this other project, which I don't see separate. I see it as integrated and I see it as part of your avenue to to actualize yourself and to grow. Hmm. And, and it's interesting at that piece too because you wear many different hats, of course, of which coaching is a huge one, but albeit it's it's one. And it's a part of you. You know, so obviously, as we deciphered at the beginning, like you're a key lever of emotions. You use emotions as a lever to inspire change within yourself and to inspire change within others too not only players, but staff members itself. So, you know, I'm curious to explore more and it's something I've never asked you. You know, what gives you joy about coaching? I just love watching the, the play. I just love watching the ball go into the back of the net or sometimes it doesn't and I'm like, wow, that was, that was really cool. So I always say that however my team plays is who I am. Like you can tell a coach by the way their team plays. So I just want to watch good football, whatever that may be, it changes because the players change, trends change, but there's an essence to the game where you just feel this is this is good. And I suppose there's no better feeling being part of a group and being part of a band of brothers, you could say, where that's like, you can see that emanating through everybody else and then sharing in that unbridled universal joy. It doesn't happen without other people, right? Mm. In, the, in those moments, whether you're down or you're up, it's they're, they're they're always shared. They're always shared with others. Fantastic. And I mean, again, it's just one part though. You know, and the part is never greater than the whole. And I mean, obviously when you speak about mimetic desire there, when you speak about the actual just joy for the sake of football, watching goals going to the back of the net. You know, you're saying each team is a reflection of its coach. You know, it, it echoes back nicely to what you said to me before, you know, the juiciest meat is best cooked, you know, when it's low and slow. 
you know, you can't get away from who you are in the medium to long term. You know, what you'll get out of life is always, you know, a reflection of who you are. So it's a case of like, all right, if we know this character trait, it's going to be absolutely massive in determining any success, any outcomes in the medium to long term. It's like, we spoke about periodization, right? But for young coaches entering the game, young decision makers, like surely this is something we should be putting more and more development and training into. Yeah, for sure. And, and look, I think the UK and their coaching framework, it was something that they tried to implement in 2010. And they have been getting quite a lot of success around these kind of things where it's not just tactical skill or periodization and planning. These are these are necessary preconditions. You, you cannot escape them. But at the end of the day, the other skills are also very, very valuable. And why people may think they're soft, they're actually hard skills. They reside in your brain, like the ability to kick a ball. Mm. it's the same thing and if you think about it the boat probably goes smoother into the sunset if it rocks less so there's something about making sure the boat is rocking as little as possible yeah I mean like I'm only beginning to kind of imagine and picture kind of the potentialities for head coach as we spoke about you know substantiated there's going to be interferences on board you know that'll make the water a little bit friction but I mean, with one eye ahead on the future, I mean, what route do you and your business partners see regarding the app going down? Because right now I can see many different avenues, many different roads. Yeah, well, look, we, we have a, a feature roadmap and there's a lot of things on it there. I don't really want to talk about them online in case somebody steals my ideas. But at the end of the day, the idea was that people have an aim, young people have a goal. Each goal has right actions or habits or behaviors. Even for your off-field goals, there are certain things you can do linked to your needs. And emotional intelligence is a nice reference for you to navigate that journey and build those habits and reach those goals. So for us to, to do that and make it scalable and help as many people as possible, young athletes in particular, to fulfill their goals or maybe find out that they have another goal and they don't want to be a footballer and they want to do something else. They want to be a coach. But you would also say that's part of their potentiality and that's part of something that they all must go through because they will not always be a player. And maybe they can find something like Pat, Pat Nevin, whereby they can they can actualize themselves somewhere else as well. And do you see it just being limited to young athletes? Do you see anyone else engaging in the use of head coach? Well, if you think about what, I don't know if you've read Yuval Noah Harari's book, mm. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and Homo Deus, what he says is that, that the jobs market with AI, bioengineering, job markets are going to change very, very quickly. Hard skills are going to change. We might not even need the same hard skills we needed before. But the, the number one thing that we need to continue is, is emotional intelligence because we will, have to, we will never have to stop interacting and engaging with people as much as some people would like to think they can do on social media and stay in their house, but they can't. It's absolutely crazy. And look, the, the app for me is an absolute game changer just in terms of seeing my first order consequences of the group, of the work it's been doing with the girls. I can't begin to think of the second or third order consequences further down the line, but even for me myself being kind of playing around with it a lot recently, but obviously I know you heavily implemented you yourself. So since you've been using it, I mean, have you, detected any changes in your own daily routine? So, so the thing about it is 
it's based on emotional intelligence competencies. So things like self-awareness, ability to recognize things in myself, my behaviors, my thought processes, my thought patterns and my actions and how they align, how, how they interact with the outer world and whether they're giving me success or not and what I'm feeling and what that's telling me. So to me, it's like yoga or it's like weight training whereby you don't actually recognize the consequences of not having these skills or using these habits until you stop using them. Hmm. So one of the challenges for using emotional intelligence and other psychologically informed skills is that people think they are, people think they're soft or they don't exist. But at the end of the day, they're happening in your brain and they are habits and they must be embedded. So the easiest way for me to do that is to use the app or to use the journal within it. So yeah, like, like I say, it's something that if you use it, you'll lose it kind of thing. And mm. it's, a, it's a never ending thing. If there's one thing I've learned about it is there's no arrival zone where you've arrived and your, your EQ is through the roof. You'll be constantly given new lessons that you'll have to manage and navigate through. And unless you're working on it, it's you're just going to bang your head off a wall sometimes, right? And naturally, that'll be a disappointment to certain people that they can't get any prize for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a leaderboard. So if you take your little box in the app, you'll get a you get a point on your leaderboard as a habit. We look at EQ as the ultimate habit mm. within the app. So the app has a habit tracker. The app's habit tracker is based off Maslow's hierarchy of needs model. Um, we spoke about the deficiency needs and the the B needs, right? The needs for growth. But apparently Maslow didn't like hierarchies. Apparently he just seen these as, as an integrated thing. So we don't have a, a pyramid of needs, but we have a a pyramid of habits that would be helpful for you on your journey. And we look at the highest leverage habit that you can have as building and developing your emotional intelligence. Mm. And it's one that's iterable. It's one that's sustainable. It's one that can you can pass on as a gift to countless others too. And you know what, you touched upon Maslow's work there. You know, one gentleman who built upon it in the past few years, a book we've read both, um, Scott Barry Kaufman and his great work on transcendence. And I think that ties in nicely to the B needs and the D needs model in terms of you're never ever there and it's not hierarchical or it's not, as he says, level determinant. You could, yeah, you could go up a level, but it doesn't mean that, you sac that you've gone up without sacrificing self-esteem or connection with relation to growth and expansion. So for me in life, it seems to be constant talk of war to negotiate both on top of even the performance and well-being side of things. Well, I mean, it's not Mario. It's not like you get to this level and you reach this next level and you do not have these challenges from before. You still mm -hmm. deal with the challenges in your relationship. You still have to deal with challenges in your career and everything else. For me, it's just important that you have a tool or a point of reference or a pillar to, to look to, to help yourself navigate those things. Mm. And, you know, as, as happens, but I suppose all tools, they can become malfunctioned over time or they, you know, they could be misused or they could just wear out. So I suppose looking at nowadays and looking at where the space is evolving, in the coming few years. I mean, how is your toolkit adapting and evolving to deal with the modern player? So the, the app is a big, big piece of it. Mm. So 
I mean, sometimes I'll run a training session 30 times on a concept and the players will struggle to execute it. Maybe they haven't embedded it yet. But then the second I show them a video of a, a team doing something, they're pretty good at executing it instantly. So there's obviously the piece where it's not just one of them, it's both. So I think the most important thing in the future is going to be utilizing technologies because at the end of the day, the biggest habit, if you'll call it a habit, I know Huberman would call it a compulsion, but mm. it's their phone. So if we can engage people through their phones that isn't going anywhere, unless something really unforeseen happens, then that's probably the most important adaptation that I can make as a coach to access parts of my player that I won't see because I only have them for one and a half hours a day. So for example, the wellbeing report within our app, yeah. every coach will be able to look on their phone and check how was Michael's sleep last night? Did he sleep well? Self-reported, of course. Um, how is he feeling? Because sometimes the modern young young people, I have noticed they don't like to speak about things in person. You'll ask them a question, you can see that there's something wrong with them and they'll not tell you. And then one hour later, the parent will message you saying, so-and-so wants to speak to you. Um, there's a problem you wonder if you can help with. So to get into their world yeah. um, is probably a big help. I think it's healthy, right, too, because you see a lot of people take the easy route out, the path of least resistance and just castigate it. But it's something else, too, to have the technology and begin to embrace it and work alongside it. Yeah, and look, with any new technology, there, there'll be some clunkiness or there'll be things to fix or edit. But at the end of the day, that's that's like that's the sculpting piece, isn't it? Like hmm. technology is going nowhere, EQ is going nowhere. So the question is, how do I make sure that the players firstly see the value in it, which they probably will once they engage with it, and how do we add to it? But but for 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 a start, we have to make sure we lock in what we have now. Okay, and I mean looking at again current youth players, I mean. For people that would be willing to explore a head coach and impact and use of its technology, I mean, what are probably some triggers or perhaps pieces coaches would need to be very attentive to in their players to kind of to begin to become a little bit aware about that they may be thinking of utilizing head coaches that support infrastructure? Well, for me, like, like I said before, we talk a lot about we care about the well-being of the player. We care about the player, the person, but... If that's the case, then we need more information mm. and we need to be more conscious because it's not easy to manage X number of people and manage X number of people. It, it taxes you as well. Yeah. So there's interferences in already in the foundations. So, I mean, for me, the way I want to use it is I want to see the data over time of how well is my team, like how are they feeling and how am I feeling? Mm. And is there a correlation? Because I know for sure anecdotally that when I'm not in a good mood or I'm annoyed or I'm frustrated, I can see it in the team and how they play. Or if there's no cooperation in certain levels of the, the staff or something happened internally, it impacts the team and their performance. So even if you really, really want to just perform, 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 you should probably look into it. Look. I mean, I'd highly recommend anyone checking it out, but I mean, tying it all together, I suppose, Maslow's quote, very, very good there again. It's just like man's only rival is his potentialities. I mean, 
you can call me out on this one. I don't mean to be playing bad or passing you a bad ball on the podcast, but being the right devil's advocate here, I mean, with that quote in mind, do you ever foresee yourself ever taking a break from coaching, taking a break from football, exploring other industries, getting involved there? Would you not think that you're better off, but think perhaps that there's some growth there on the other side of the horizon for you, unbeknownst? Well, I mean, it goes back to the self-actualization, self-transcendence piece where I'm a kid from Belfast. All they do is play football or Gaelic or boxing in the street and they go to the games at the weekend. So my my I decided to follow like a passion that I wanted to do. And it's been it's been an avenue whereby I can develop myself as well because the coach is in the character of the person who's coaching. So for me, there's something about developing yourself and you'll be a better coach. Work on yourself and you'll do a better job, as Jim Rome would say. But by definition, when I try to build an analog platform for my players to improve their emotional intelligence and by definition their performance, they want to get better. I want to be a better coach. It led me down the avenue of building this app. So it was never my intention to build this app. I just wanted to be a coach and beyond football ability improvement, it's football coaching. What is coaching? Coaching is helping people find their way and get their goals and remove maybe any limiting beliefs that they have, which involves asking good questions. So if I look at it from that perspective, I don't know. Mm. I love coaching. I love to see players play a certain way. Could I see myself doing something else? Sure. But it's different than being a player because you can do it till the day you die. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, with that being said, is there anyone that you're looking to now as a mentor, as a coach, that you're asking good questions of? I watch Michael Arteta's team. I watch Pep Guardiola's team. It's, it's about it, really. Might Don't have really. to cut out the piece about Mikel Arteta giving your Arsenal affiliation. I'm yeah. Well, but, my, uh, my coach educators are Raymond Verheyen, obviously. I've been doing Raymond's work for a couple of years. It's been a big value add. I'm on his pro license course this year. Our technical director, Yanni, has also been very, very good in helping me upskill myself on the football side. So I go for quality over quantity. Hmm. How would you define the role of a coach? Number one, improve the football ability. Number two, remove as many interferences as possible to execute that ability. I mean, with that being said, there seems to be an awful lot on your plate, a lot of good work, projects to look forward to, projects currently ongoing, momentum on the way. Like, I'm very excited to see what happens in the future with yourself and the head coach, you know, in particular. So, I mean, I've had you on two podcasts before and it's been kind of great to see your growth and your trajectory kind of intermittently since then. And obviously between podcast two and three, given that it's such a significant time period. But I've asked you this on the first show. I'll ask you again now on part three about your key advice, but I'm going to tailor it and dress it up in a way. You know, for those coaches out there that are about to embark on their own journey or that are in the midst, they're at our 
could be at the top of that first peak or somewhat in that first peak. Coaches that are that little bit more tuned and they're wearing, they want more info about integrating the performance side with their well-being. What would be the one bit of a key advice you'd have for them? Constantly learn. It's as simple as that. Like they've obviously decided they have an aim. So their aim is to be better and coaching is their avenue to do it. Don't just look at football. Like you must study football. Like there's no ifs, buts or maybes about it. If there's if you're in a top level game and something changes and you can't fix it or you can't help your players, well then you're probably not going to come up with a solution that's required or a solution that's required. But But for me, like you must also look at everything else. So if you can imagine a pie and football being a part of it, you must know yourself and you must understand people. And there's been a lot of smart people back in, from the Greek philosophers to the humanistic psychologists to the new neuroscience coming out. There's a lot of stuff out there that can help you improve your coaching practice and also help you cross-pollinate ideas um, and given metaphors and analogies that will help pennies drop for players. I, I think coaches should be characters. My teachers when I was a kid, the teachers who engaged me the most, the classes that I liked, the teachers were characters. They had imprints in them that were that were cool, that you could tell by talking to them. There's something in this guy that's interesting that's worth worth listening to. The subjects that I hate, I didn't like the teachers and I thought they were dull. So for me, there's something about developing a, a strong personality and a strong character to go along with your your football knowledge. Because if you don't have, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have, if people don't want to hear it, then it may as well not be there. It's like there's there's no difference between you having all the knowledge and being Einstein. But if no one listens to you, there's no difference between you and the man with no knowledge. So there's something about working on yourself, being able to relate with people, having knowledge across multiple domains. And if it's what you really want to do, you won't need discipline to do it for the most part. Well, Johnny, you're certainly not dull. I think you're fantastic at what you do. Not only respect to coaching, but also with the app. Uh, it's a privileged, it's a privilege of mine, rather, to call you a colleague, learn from you every single day. So everyone listening to this podcast, I'd certainly implore them to connect with Johnny online and to look at the head coaching app because I know it has the power to transform an awful lot of teams, coaches and players all over the world. So, Jonathan O'Neill, again, I must say it was an absolute privilege to have you on today. Thank you, Connor. Hopefully we'll do it again soon.